Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. So let's really begin by doing a, a quick review of chapter 4 as a lead-in for tonight. John, Yochanan, was taken up into heaven. Heaven was the place that God had determined where he would reveal himself and where he would give the information of the revelation. First thing John sees is someone sitting on a throne. Chapter 4, we get the teaching that this one sitting on the throne is a symbol of the ultimate authority and power. Then they're introduced, 24 elders, also sitting on their thrones, concentrically encircling the throne of God. The elders are wearing golden crowns, crowns of victors, not crowns of political authority, but the the crowns of, of those who have had victory. Then the four living beings are introduced who hang around the center of the throne, center of the group around the throne of God. And then we find out that there's worship of the one sitting on the throne. Worship, frankly, in, in the sense that he is absolute holiness and power. So now we have the one on the throne having absolute power, absolute authority, absolute holiness, and absolute purity. This is, if you will, Almighty God himself on this throne. Then we looked at passages that hinted at the integration of God and Messiah. And so now we arrive at chapter 5, and the revelation is continued to John. So we're going to pick this up by reading chapter 5, verse 1, please. Next I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Until now, John has been surveying the larger scene. Now his attention is being brought to detail. He notices a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And the right hand is singled out in this. We need to pay attention. Why the right hand? Why not the left hand? Why not just say a hand? Why not have it on a plate? In fact, these human terms really are used to define things in such a way that they tell us something about the person that's sitting on the throne. The right hand is a symbol. Consider that. The right hand is a symbol not only of power, but of favor. And that's something that's important that we understand. That is the reason that the right hand is revealed to Yochanan, to John. Scripture helps us, if we'll pay attention to it, Scripture helps us to understand Scripture. So let's go on then to Exodus chapter 15 and verse 6. Your right hand, Adonai, is sublimely powerful. Your right hand, Adonai, shatters the foe. That's giving us information about the right hand, about the power of the right hand and so forth. This is, is from the song of Moses and the people of Israel, the one that they sang and when they entered the land. And notice that what that verse 6 says, Your right hand, Adonai, is sublimely powerful. Your right hand, Adonai, shatters the foe. So we're going to investigate different things about this right hand here. Let's begin by going to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. It says, Listen to me, Yaakov, Jacob, Israel, 
whom I have called. I am he who is first, I am also the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them at once, they rose into being. Here's the power of the right hand, the symbol of power. Now take that to Psalm 110 and verse 1. This is Psalm of David. Adonai says to my Lord, Set at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Set at my right hand. It's a place of favor. Let's also look at Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Kepha, Peter, and the other emissaries, disciples, answered, We must obey God, not men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. God has exalted this man at his right hand as ruler and savior in order to enable Israel to do teshuvah, that's repentance, and have her sins forgiven. Again, we have the right hand involved. Do this. Give us a clue, if you will, about the right hand. And he does. So we see the right hand has favor associated with it. A lot of symbolism here in the right hand. Power. Favor. Extend that a little further into the thought of sin. Only God has the power to grant favor to those who have sinned. Interesting. Favor is given also in regard to Messiah. In the right hand of this one on the throne is a scroll. The language is such that you would immediately think the scroll is being held by that right hand, being gripped. But it's not really the case. It's like that it's just laying, just lays on the palm of the right hand. And that's the essence of the language here. The scroll is laying on the palm of the right hand. There is a conceptual separation between the one who sat on the throne, God himself, and later on the Lamb who receives this from him, this scroll. There is a conceptual separation. God is not grasping this scroll, but is about to pass it off. He's about to pass it off. It's interesting that the word for scroll here in the Greek is biblos. Biblos, the word we get Bible from. The word used here is a diminutive form, biblion, which can also be interpreted as book. In fact, the 1901 American Standard Version translates this here as book. It is not a scroll in the usual sense because of this particular word, if you will. Then it goes on to say that the scroll has writing on both sides. Scrolls, because of their rolled-up nature, do not have this. Do not have words written on both sides. This is definitely something different. Again, Pay attention, it's something unusual. It's generally held that this writing on both sides indicates that what was written on the scroll was thorough, that it was saturated, that it was complete, that it was in its entirety everything you really wanted to get. Thorough in its scope and effect. Then it goes on to say that the scroll was sealed with seven seals. So, Seven sealed. Let's let's begin with the fact that it was sealed at all. What does the fact that it was sealed really mean? So, to do that, let's see how seals are used in Scripture. Begin in Daniel 8.26, please. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but you are to keep the vision secret because it is about days in the distant future. 
In other words, this is saying you're to keep this a secret, you're to seal it up. This, I think, is giving us a concept where a person is sealed, if you will, too. Well, we'll look at that in just a minute. It's interesting because what is being talked about here is the end of days. The complete Jewish Bible says keep the vision secret. Most translations will use the term seal it up because it is about days in the distant future. It could very well be referring to this scroll that we're looking at now in God's right hand in Revelation 5.1, if we want to kind of poke that a little bit. Now let's go to John, Gospel, chapter 6, verse 27. Don't work for the food which passes away, but for the food that stays on into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For this... For this is the one on whom God the Father has placed his seal. Yeshua is talking. This is the concept where a person is sealed for a particular use or a particular protection. If you will, we are sealed. All of us in this room right now, I believe, are sealed. Let's go to Ephesians 4.30. Don't cause grief to God's Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit. For he has stamped you as his property until the day of final redemption. Let me read that again. Don't cause grief to God's Ruach HaKodesh, for he has stamped you as his property until the day of final redemption. The complete Jewish Bible says stamped you. Most translations will say sealed you. Sealed you. And this will give us a feeling of what a seal is all about in God's usage. A seal is something that keeps something in preservation. I think, is a good term. Back in Daniel, it was a fact. Seal that up. Keep that secret until the last days. Preserve it. The seals also had other concepts. The seals were used to assure that the contents of the document were valid. The seals were used to indicate that the contents were withdrawn from human knowledge. It was a human seal that was placed on it. That's what we had in Daniel. The seals are used so that the scope of the contents of whatever is sealed here profound secrets of divine judgment and counsel, and these are being held in God's right hand. Now, there is the fact that there are seven seals, which tells of the sacredness of the document. Many people hold that seven is a sacred number, the complete number. This dealing with the completeness of the document or the perfection of the document. That document is a finished product, so that there is a lot in just a few words being said here when we examine it. Just one verse here. Next I saw in the right hand of someone sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And we found an awful lot of stuff in there, and we really only just skimmed across it. Let's go on now, still in Revelation 5, to verses 2 through 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look inside. Verse 4, I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Did you notice here? We're really rolling. We've read three verses at one time. The next thing that Yochanan John sees is in heaven around the throne of God is a mighty angel. A mighty angel. 
The emphasis here is on might. We know about Michael, Michael, and we know about Gabriel, Gabriel. These are mighty angels. We know about the angel that killed the firstborn of the tenth plague of Egypt. During the tenth plague of Egypt, he killed all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn males. Egypt was the world power at that time. The angel, when the king of Assyria was coming against Jerusalem in Hezekiah's time, and the angel killed 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrian troops in one night. These are all pretty powerful angels. So this angel that's speaking up here in Revelation 5.2 is at least on the par with these that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Because only one supremely strong could challenge all creation. And what he's done basically is challenged all creation. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? He's throwing down a challenge before all creation. In the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is not just in the physical world. This is including the spiritual world. And no other created being would be able to accept this challenge. That's the implication here. No created being would be able to accept this challenge, is the implication here. In other words, this angel stands before the entire created order, spirit and flesh, and he challenges all of them, and there is no one, nobody, powerful enough to say, get out of my way, I don't want to listen to you. Even this angel, with all his might, is not powerful enough to open these seals. Sort of makes you think of Zechariah 4, six which says, quote, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai. See, it wasn't might or power in this case to open the seals. It was worthiness. That's the clue. Worthiness was the requirement to break the seals. Who is worthy to come and open the scroll, break its seals? All the created power and might put together was not sufficient in order to come before God Take that scroll and be allowed to break those seals. And this angel challenges, who is worthy to break these seals and open the scroll? In verse 3, we see that nobody in heaven or earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or even peep inside of it. In each of the regions, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, as the challenge went forth to each region, no one was worthy. All of creation was found wanting and unworthy. Even Gabriel and Michael, absolute holy beings who serve God on levels that we can't even conceive of, were not considered worthy. Verse 4 is very interesting because here we have an emotional response from Yochanan, from John. Generally, we would read this and think this was totally unexpected. Why would John, of all people, get bent out of shape? Nobody was closer to Yeshua than John was. No one knew the purpose of Yeshua better than John did. Why would he get all emotional like this? Well, the bottom line is he's experiencing emotional trauma. He's experiencing an emotional trauma. Apparently, it's hopelessness and despair that's getting to him. The language here indicates trauma. I cried and I cried. The actual concept in the Greek, though, is he had a noisy grief. A noisy grief, wailing. Nobody's been found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Where's Yeshua? There's the key. Where's Yeshua? We've been told everything that John has seen around the throne to this point, 
but nobody has been found worthy to open the scroll, and Yeshua has not been in evidence, has not been described in any form up to this point. John has hit the wall. This breaks him down in emotional trauma. This really instills in John a hopelessness and despair that he can't control. Obviously, the contents of the scroll and his grief are closely connected. The question here is, would God's purposes be carried out? Is salvation at a standstill? Will the revelation of God be withheld? Because no one is found to be worthy. If the answer is yes, and the answer is yes, if such is that case then, if there's no one worthy, so can we begin to pick this up by asking the question, what happened on the execution state? The sin sacrifice that Messiah submitted to, which guarantees us, seals us for salvation, is a small part of what went on there before the throne of God. Is this still valid if there's no one worthy to break the seals? What went on there gets beyond our comprehension because it involves all of eternity. We're going to see this all the way through Revelation. I want to establish this in your mind. We're going to see this all through the Revelation. What went on there is beyond our comprehension because it involves all of eternity. And that's been a problem with understanding Revelation. Let's go to Luke chapter 21, verse 27, please. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with tremendous power and glory. When these things start to happen, stand up. Hold your heads high because you're about to be liberated. Yeshua is talking here in Luke. He's talking about end days. In fact, he's talking about what is in this sealed up scroll. He's talking about, here in Luke, I believe, what is in this sealed up scroll. Some translations will say your redemption draws near. I think this passage in Luke ties into the weeping and wailing of John in Revelation 5.4. John knew in his heart I think perhaps from this passage in Luke, because he would have been there when Yeshua uttered these words, that if that scroll could not be open, then his redemption would never draw near. Very interesting thought having to do with John's reaction here, the reason that he's wailing. Why all of a sudden is John weeping and wailing? We've probably only touched the surface on this. But let's go ahead to Revelation 5.5. 5. One of the elders said to me, that is John, Don't cry, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's like a slap across John's face. Wake up, pay attention to what you already know. You know. <laughs> Here is John in this blue funk. He's in a real distraught state. Absolute hopelessness and despair. And one of the elders intervenes. The elder turns to him and says in so many words, Get a life, fella. Well, not really. He said, Don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll to break its seven seals. Don't cry. Look. Pay attention. This episode is interesting in that one of the elders speaks to John here. All through Revelation, it is angels who are speaking to John. But here it is one of the elders. This would seem to indicate a role for these elders beyond what has been previously described for us as we've been going through this. And that was them sitting on thrones before God, casting down their crowns, worshiping 
and so forth, the elders seem to have a more active role in the order and organization, if you will, of the actions around the throne based on that this elder is now speaking with John. It's interesting that what John is experiencing is represented in 1 Corinthians 13.11. Would you give me that, please? When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, argued like a child. Now that I've become a man, I've finished with childish ways. John, for that moment there, has reverted to childish ways. He's not dealing with this in an adult manner. John is weeping for lack of knowledge or rather from not having a clear picture of what's happening. The elder exhorts John here saying, don't cry. Things that were apparent to the elder were just not popping into John's mind. John was seeing obscurely. The elder then directs John's attention. Look, this is stated in messianic terms that John could understand. Remember, there's no New Testament yet. There's no Brit Hadishah yet, only references from the Old Testament. And so what he's given is, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That points to Messiah. This expression, lion of the tribe of Judah, only appears in this passage. Nowhere else, but it's based on some statements from the Old Testament. Let's begin in Genesis 49.9, if you will. Judah is a lion's cub. That connects. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you stand over the prey. He crouches down and stretches like a lion, like a lioness. Who dares to provoke him? Jacob is dying in Egypt, and he calls all of his sons together to bless them. In his blessing of Judah, the imagery of the lion is tied to the tribe of Judah. That's what we've just read a passage out of. Let's go to Numbers 23-24. Here's a people rising up like a lioness. Like a lion, he rears himself up. He will not lie down until he eats the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. This is a reference to Israel when Balaam is trying to curse Israel for Balak the king of Moab. And every time he tried to curse Israel, he ended up blessing them. Since we're in Numbers, let's go over to the next page, Numbers 24, 9. When they lie down, they crouch like a lion, or like a lioness, who dares to rouse it up. Blessed be all who bless you, cursed be all who curse you. That's again referring to the tribes of Israel. Now, let's go to John, Gospel, chapter 4, verse 22. Yeshua is returning to the Galilee through Samaria, and he encounters this woman at the well in Samaria. And he says to her, you people don't know what you're worshiping. We worship what we know because salvation, which in the Hebrew is Yeshua, comes from the Jews. There's a little built-in thing in there. All of this connects salvation from the Jews. The tribes are like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Salvation comes from the Jews. All of this again connects the lion from the tribe of Judah is Messiah. The root of David is another expression. But it's not really found in the Old Testament. It's just based there. Go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But a branch will emerge from the trunk of Jesse. A shoot will grow from his roots. Verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse, which stands as a banner for the peoples, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will seek him out. That is, that root that comes from Jesse. Jesse being the grandfather of David. 
the root of Jesse, which stands for the banner of the peoples, the Gentiles will seek him out and the place where he rests will be glorious. All of this is pointing towards terminology that's being used for us here in Revelation, but is generated by pictures given to us in the Old Testament. These verses both begin with very messianic passages. In Revelation 5.5, 5, we have the root of David, who was David's father, Jesse. Jesse's the one we just looked at in uh, Isaiah. One last reference to tie this together, and I hope it does. Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, the genealogy that ties this all together, we begin with back in the Old Testament with Jesse and moving to David because that is the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David. The lion of the lost tribe of Judah, the root of David, the son of Jesse. In Hebrew thought, all of one's forefathers are the same as just being his father. All of the one's forefathers are considered to be the father, all built together into the final one that ends up being your father. These two expressions, to anyone who knew the scriptures at the time, this could only be talking about Messiah. And Messiah has earned the right to break the seven seals and to open the scroll. He's triumphed, a victory in the most complete sense. He has earned the right to break the seven seals and open the scroll. Once and for all, Messiah has conquered because in this triumph he's been empowered to do the one thing that no one else can do. Break these seals and open that scroll. We have to understand this in those terms. We have to understand this in those terms. That's what the triumph of Messiah enables him to do. Break these seals and open that scroll and complete the final pages of history and carry out our final redemption on the Day of Atonement. That's what this points to. He is able. He alone is able because of what he has done in reaching this point. Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw standing there with the throne and the four living beings in the circle of the elders a lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. John, I saw a lamb looking like it had been slaughtered. Let's ask ourselves a question. What would John have been expecting to see here? This elder has just talked about a lion to him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and of a root, the root of David. If that were me there, I would probably be looking for something like a lion maybe at this time. But John's earthly eyes see a lamb. That's what he records for us. John's earthly eyes see a lamb. It is interesting that the Greek word used for lamb here is arnion. Arnion. A-R-N-I-O-N is the way I've spelled it. It's found 28 times in the book of Revelation. Outside of Revelation, it is only found once in the New Testament, but found 28 times in Revelation. Elsewhere, when the term lamb is used referring to Messiah, the word omnos, O-M-N-O-S, is used, but not in Revelation. Now, the contrast between these two words is immense. 
In Amnos we see the nature and the character of a sacrifice, but in Arneon we still see the sacrifice, but it isn't lost or set aside. But in Arneon we also see his acquired majesty and dignity. We see the nature and character of the sacrifice, but also we see his acquired dignity, honor and authority and power. The one time that Arneon is used outside of Revelation is in a statement made by John the Baptist. Let's turn to John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, Yochanan, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Yeshua coming towards him and said, Look, God's Lamb, the one who is taking away the sins of the world. That's the only time out of Revelation that the term Arneon is used. All through the New Testament, the mention of the Lamb is tied to sacrifice. But here in this one place and in Revelation, it's still sacrifice. It's all so much more because it is tied to his being raised from the dead. It's tied to his having triumphed. Therefore, he is the only one that is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. Now, I'm going to stop here. This is a little bit of a short lesson, but I'm going to stop here and pick this up next time, continuing on with verse 6, because I don't want to start a new thought now, which I'm not going to be able to get through with the rest of the time, and then break it in the middle and cause us to maybe lose some continuity over the week. I want to start with a fresh start in this new thought that we're going to present and move ahead then. So we'll close for now. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in a word on Solace Radio. All right. We left off last week working on the verse 6, number 6 of Revelation chapter 5. So let's pick it back up there. Just a quick review. John the disciple is in heaven in the spirit at the throne of God. He is seeing things uh, that are new to him and he's writing these all down for us. He's at the throne of God, the location that God has chosen to make known this revelation in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, who is Adonai, God of heaven's armies, was a scroll. And written on both sides of this scroll were what we wanted us to have, and it was sealed with seven seals. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And a mighty angel asked this question, and, and nobody, nobody in all of creation was found worthy. No person, no angel, none of the created beings of God was worthy. We absolutely have to have a complete grasp of this. No one who was created was worthy to break those seals and open that scroll, not even lift up a corner and peep inside. This causes John to wail. He has an emotional mini-crisis over this because he realizes that if there's no one worthy to break those seals and open that scroll, his very redemption is at stake. The redemption of the world really is at stake because what's contained in that scroll is the final chapter of man. What's in that scroll is the final chapter of man and the final chapter of the physical creation of God. There had to be someone worthy to break those seals and open that scroll or the end times couldn't come and the eternity with God that we've been promised would never be revealed, potentially not carried out. 
And John has a crisis with this. Not that the rest of us wouldn't have. This also gives us an idea about how in tune that John was with the plan of God and, and of Messiah. And then one of the elders, one of the elders that's gathered around the throne, speaks and says to John, quote, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll, break the seven seals. So what we what would we expect to see standing there then at the beginning of verse 6? Possibly a lion, because the lion of the tribe of Judah has won the right to do this. What do we see? Well, let's pick this up in Revelation 5, 6, and please. Then I saw standing there with the throne and the four living beings in the circle of the elders a lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God, sent out into all of the earth. A lamb, looking like it had been slaughtered. That's what we see. Remember that the Greek word used here for lamb, with one exception, is found only in the book of Revelation. And that exception being the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which is referring to Yeshua, who is walking up at that time, the one who is taking away the sin of the world. Everywhere else in the New Testament, a different Greek word is used for lamb. The Greek word used here in Revelation is a contrast, if you will, to the Greek word used elsewhere for lamb. Omnos, used in the rest of the Brit Hadishah, New Testament, looks directly at the lamb's sacrifice. But in Revelation, the word Arion presents, in addition to a sacrifice, which is not diminished, his acquired majesty and dignity and honor and power and authority. This is how the Lamb is viewed throughout the book of the Revelation, with his majesty, dignity, honor, authority, and power. And that's important, because you and I, those of us who are believers, throughout all of eternity are going to have a connection with the Lamb. So we need to have that understanding. In Revelation 21, beginning with this chapter, eternity is being revealed. So let's look at Revelation 21:22, please. This is John speaking. I saw no temple in the city, for Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. Now, this is going to be our reality. The Lamb present throughout all eternity. We'll explore this a little deeper as we go along, but back in Revelation 5, 6, it goes on to tell us that this lamb looks as if it had been slaughtered. It's generally agreed on that this language is an idiom for an individual that's been resurrected. The lamb looks like it's been dead. The lamb appeared to have been slaughtered. When that type of language is used, it is an idiom for a resurrected individual. Remember that John had lived during the time of the temple sacrifice. That had been part of his life. At this time, which is 96 common era, the temple had been destroyed for 26 years. But for most of his life, John went to the temple and observed the sacrifice where the sacrificial lambs were being slaughtered. There's no doubt that when he's speaking here, he's thinking in terms of sacrifice, in terms of the sacrificial lamb. He doesn't think of the lamb as slain, but he thinks of the lamb as though slain being very much alive. In other words, resurrected. The Greek perfect 
tense here, the Greek perfect tense here, signifies that the lamb was not only slain at some point in time, but the power to produce an effect from that sacrificial death is still present in all of the lamb's power. Present in all of the lamb's power. So we need to think about that. These words encompass all that information, all that meaning, if you will. We need to understand all of that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. It says, Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open its mouth. Isaiah 53 is a very messianic portion. Isaiah 53 messianic portion actually begins with Isaiah 52.13 and then runs through to the end of this chapter 53. This is the fourth servant song of Isaiah. There are four servant songs in Isaiah 3 before this one. This is the last and final one. And this verse speaks a prophecy, a direct prophecy about Yeshua. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, speaks through Isaiah, pointing to what John the Baptist would say. Look the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then in Revelation 1.18, the glorified Yeshua comes, comes into John's presence, not looking like a lamb, and John fell at his feet to worship him, and Yeshua said, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And now having moved forward to our passage in Revelation 5.6, a lamb that looked, appeared to have been slaughtered, is there before the throne. An interesting thing is that the entire Godhead is represented here in Revelation chapter 5. The Father, the one sitting on the throne, the Messiah, the Son, in the Lamb. And as we go on through the verse, the Ruach HaKodesh will be mentioned. I will point that out as we get to it. It's only the Son of God who is apparently worthy to open the scroll because of his obedience unto death and his resurrection he is worthy. There was not a created being in all of what God had brought about that was worthy, only the Son of God, because of his obedience. Let's go to Messianic Jews, Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. It says, So neither, the, neither did the Messiah glorify himself to become Kohen Gadol, high priest. Rather, it was the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. Also, as he says in another place, you are a Kohen, a priest forever, to be compared with Melchizedek, that's Melchizedek. During Yeshua's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, crying aloud and shedding tears to the one who had the power to deliver him from death, and he was heard because of his godliness. Even though he was the son, he learned obedience through his sufferings, and after he had been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obey him. That's quite a passage. You might jot that down. Messianic Jews, Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, and study on that on your spare time a little bit. Now think about this in terms of the Lamb who had been slain. This begins to define, really, the worthiness that was required in order to be op able to open the scroll, to be able to break its seals. And this is talking about how he became worthy. It shows us what he did in order to be worthy to take this scroll from the right hand of the one that sits on the throne. One other thought here. 
Just prior to this, he was described as a lion of Judah, the lion that was extremely powerful, has won victory by his atoning sacrifice to death, was a striking combination of the utmost in power, the utmost in self-giving. So we have this combination here. We have the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered, and they're one and the same. Complete Jewish Bible translation, for some reason, doesn't directly point out that the Lamb is in the center of the midst of the throne and the living beings and the elders, merely that he's there among them. The implication in the Greek, though, is that the Lamb is in the center of the throne and the four living beings that are around the throne. He is the center subject right now, which make him and also in the center of the elders that are surrounding the throne. That, by virtue of language, places the Lamb at the center of everything that's going on, a position of recognition and authority as well as servanthood. The Lamb is now in the center of all that John has described for us, and now the Lamb is further described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns and seven eyes. This is telling us something about the Lamb. First thing is the seven horns. The horn in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, indicates strength. Pack that away in your mind. When you see the word horn, it's generally indicating strength in some form or fashion. A couple of references that we can use here. Let's go to 1 Samuel 2, 1, please. Then Hannah prayed, My heart, and look at that word heart, keep that in mind, My heart exalts in Adonai. My dignity has been restored by Adonai. I can gloat over my enemies because of my joy at your saving me. This is in Hannah's prayer after the birth of Samuel when she leaves him at the tabernacle to begin ministering before God. Now, a better translation in that second line where it says, my heart might be my horn is exalted in Adonai because my horn is giving her more power. It's indicating that she has the power now to do things. She has the power that she hadn't had before to take Samuel up and leave him at the temple to begin his time of ministry there. I'm not going to preach on that very long because we've got to get home tonight. Now, in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 10, please, says, Those who fight Adonai will be shattered. He will thunder against them in heaven. Adonai will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and enhance the power of his anointed. Next. Psalm 148.14 says he has increased the power of his people. Power is mentioned again there. Granted praise to all his faithful, to the descendants of Israel, a people close to him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. These two passages, 1 Samuel 2.10 and Psalm 148.14, may be easier to read, but they really, as they're written here in English, lose the concept of the horn, which is a power thread all down through Scripture. It's talking about here he has increased the power of his people. He has increased the horn of his people. They can sound off. They can yell out. They can project, if you will, what he wants them to do. Granted, praise to all his faithful to the descendants of Israel, the people close to him. And then it says, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why seven? Why seven? Well, it's because seven is the symbol of perfection and completeness. It indicates here that the Lamb has perfect power and might, complete 
power and might because he has them in seven stages or seven phases or seven layers, if you will. In other words, there would not be an occasion when the Lamb's power and might might not prevail. There would never be a time, never be an occasion when the Lamb's power and might would not prevail. It's important that we understand that. When he comes back, there will never be a time again that his power will not prevail. There's not one occasion in which he, the Lamb, will not be in charge. Yeshua even stated that when he was on the earth. Let's find Matthew 28:18, please. Yeshua came and talked with them, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Take that to John, please, chapter 13, verse 3, which tells us Yeshua was aware that the Father had put everything in his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. That's kind of implicating what we just read in Matthew 28. See, the Father's put everything into Yeshua's power, which would support the seven horns that the Lamb had when John looked at him, because those seven horns indicate complete power, complete might. Now, what about the seven eyes? The seven eyes are actually defined for us in the text here as the sevenfold Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. The previous use of these words, sevenfold spirits, were interpreted to mean Ruach HaKodesh. Remember in Zechariah we studied this. The previous use of this word, these sevenfold spirits, were to mean Ruach HaKodesh. Zechariah 4.10, please. For even someone who doesn't think much of a day when such minor events will take place will rejoice in seeing the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So these seven eyes, these seven are the eyes of Adonai that range over all of the earth. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to get missed. And they were. Zechariah 4, 1 and 2, please. Then the angel that had been speaking with me, that's Zechariah, returned and roused me as if he were waking someone up from being asleep. And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I've been looking at a menorah with all its gold, with its bowl at its top, seven lamps on it, and seven tubes leading to the lamps on top. Remember this? The seven lamps of the menorah represent the seven eyes of Adonai that range about all over the world. We looked at that back in Zechariah when we studied that. And this speaks, this speaks, are you ready for this, of the omniscience of Adonai. This speaks to the omniscience of, of Adonai. Here in Revelation, we have these seven eyes on the Lamb, which by the verses definition of the sevenfold Spirit of God, which roamed throughout all of the earth. The thought here, of course, again, is omniscience, that the Lamb is has omniscience, and also there is an interconnection between the Lamb and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, because of the seven eyes, that are the sevenfold spirit. The sevenfold spirit of God, which we already had defined in chapter 1, is the Holy Spirit. So here in this chapter 5, we have all of the variations of God that we're familiar with, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all active. More merging of the persons of the Godhead into a single unit, if you will. Let's make one more connection between Yeshua and the, and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Let's go to Acts 16, Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. They traveled through the region of Pyrgia and Galatia because they had been prevented by the Ruach HaKodesh 
from speaking the message in the province of Asia. Notice in verse 6, they'd been prevented by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, from speaking the message in the province of Asia, so they traveled another way. When they came to the frontier of Mycenae, they tried to go into Bethania, but the Spirit of Yeshua would not let them in. So in verse 6, it's the Holy Spirit that won't let them in. And in verse 7, it's the Spirit of Yeshua that won't let them in. The Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh and Yeshua, are closely integrated. I'm not saying they're the same, but they're closely integrated. And here the omniscience of the Lamb and the Holy Spirit are very closely connected because of that integration between them. So nothing escapes the Lamb. Nothing escapes the Lamb. This chapter now combines the all-powerful, the all-knowing, with the utmost in self-giving. That's kind of fantastic. This chapter combines the all-powerful, all-knowing, with the utmost in self-giving, actual perfect love, all combined in the Lamb. All right, moving on, still in Revelation 5, verses 7 and 8. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. That's the Lamb. That's the Messiah. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the Lamb. Each one, the elders, held a harp and gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Here we see why no one's been worthy to take up the scroll and break the seals. The scroll was in the right hand of Almighty God, and the Lamb here is described as taking the scroll out of the right hand of God. This is the answer to what was just asked. Mighty angel had asked, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? The Lamb takes the seal from the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. He takes possession of it. He takes possession of it. That indicates he is the one that is worthy. Just the thought, I believe in my mind anyhow, just the thought of the Lamb taking the scroll from the right hand of God is almost impossible to visualize because it involves more than just that. It involves the death of Messiah and what will result from that sacrifice. There are two wills in play here. Think about that. There are two wills in play here. There's the will of God and the will of the Lamb. The will of God is to give the scroll to whoever is worthy, and it's the will of the Lamb to take it. We have to think of it in this manner. Otherwise, it's sort of a mundane thing. The scroll is in God's right hand, and the Lamb goes and takes the scroll. There's a lot There's a lot that's gone on, though, in preparing for this act. So it is more than mundane. There's been, are you ready for this, 6,000 years of preparation gone into this. Now it's down to the results of two wills. Two wills. God's will to give the scroll to whoever is worthy, and the Lamb's will to take the scroll from God. Prior to Yeshua being arrested, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's praying. We need to notice this extraordinary statement that he makes there while he's on the Mount of Olives praying just before they arrest him. Luke twenty-two forty-two, please. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Still, let not my will, but yours be done. I think most of us could quote that. The Father's will was done. The Father's will was done. The Father's will was done because the Son will, Son's will was to submit to the Father. He was made perfect, as we were 
told in Messianic Jews 5.9, and here the revelations of the future, even to eternity, are received by the Lamb as an abiding possession. We get that concept. He's just been handed the revelations of the future, even to eternity, by the hand of God. The secrets of the future, even all eternity, are now in the possession of the Lamb when he takes the scroll. Think about this. And then let's go to Mark 13.31, please. This is part of the Olivet Discourse, which we've also looked at earlier. Yeshua speaking here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. However, the day and hour will come. No one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, just the Father. This is part of the Olivet Discourse that we looked at earlier. Yeshua speaking here. I want us to think about this. What we are seeing in Revelation 5 in this vision is the Son, by reaching out and taking that scroll out of the Father's hand, has come into the possession of this knowledge. He has come into the possession of this knowledge, the hour and the day. It is clear that the Sovereign Lord is to bring history to a close in accordance with the preordained path. A time is coming for us to face a period of time which will usher, usher in man's greatest inhumanity demand. And we might say, how can this be? Can we exceed what's happened to this point with man against man? How can this be? But the more we look around, like on TV news, history, how inhumane man can be to man, it's really very extraordinary. The flying of loaded airplanes into crowded buildings like in New York City at 9-11, blowing up busloads of school children and commuters, and people who are wanting, desiring the annihilation of a people just because they are those people. See, there's no mercy. There's none whatsoever. But the Lamb here, the Son of God, when he opens these seals, and we're going to look at him opening these seals, we'll begin to look at the seals at the end of the lesson next week, the Son of God, the Lamb here, when he opens these seals, comes into complete sovereign control. Complete sovereign control. And he will be to us and all that follow us, all believers, the only as well as the greatest, particularly to those who studied this revelation. We have to understand what this Lamb means. This Lamb means now that's received this scroll, perfect power perfect control, omniscience. He's perfectly worthy. He's now in control of our future and all eternity when he takes that scroll off the hand of God. Now, upon the Lamb taking the scroll, these two wills that we've looked at are then involved, his will and the will of God. The four living creatures and the 24 elders all fall down and worship before the Lamb. Well, of course you would. This act of worship, though, is different from what's been described before. See, each, each, each of the elders had a harp and each were holding a golden bowl of incense. Here the incense is particularly described as the prayers of God's people. Think about that. Here the incense is particularly described as the prayers of God's people, the prayers of believers. The thought here, first of all, is we have to realize that now we are getting into this Emergence of this lamb being worshipped by the 24 elders and the four living beings. These 24 elders and four living beings worship the one sitting on the throne. 
Holy, holy is Adonai, the God of heaven's army, and now they're worshiping the Lamb. The only conclusion that we can come to is that the Lamb is God. That's the only conclusion we can come to, that the Lamb is God, because you can worship none other than God. God himself has said, you shall have no other gods before me. Then there's John's gospel. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and lived among us. This is a recurring theme. The Lamb and the Father seem to be separate entities, but they're not. They're one and the same, but still separate, almost incomprehensible to the finite mind. If you get a chance to on your on your homework time, Look up Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, or it could be verse 6, depending on your translation, which will say, in essence, Wonder of a Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And understand, if you read from a modern Tanakh, a modern Jewish Bible, the English translation is distorted. They play with it because it doesn't say what they want it to say. But the complete Jewish Bible... And almost all Christian Bibles are accurate. The complete Jewish Bible, as far as the Hebrew is concerned, is an exact translation of Matthew 9, 5, slash 6, depending upon which one you come up with. Also here we have these bowls of incense. Interesting thought. Remember Aaron's son, Nadav and Avahu? Why did they die? They had bowls of incense, but they filled them with strange fire. They filled them with strange fire. What fire would they have had in there? Probably fire from the bronze altar of sacrifice. That's what they should have had in there, was fire from the bronze altar of sacrifice. But they didn't put that in there. They put in strange fire, fire that was not from where the lambs of God were sacrificed. That would have been an adequate fire. And think of this. Think of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And now let's read Leviticus 16, 12, and 13. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before Adonai. With his hands full of ground fragrant incense, bring it inside the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before Adonai so that the cloud from the incense will cover the ark cover which is over the testimony in order that he will not die. This is the high priest. This is actually an instruction to Aaron. This is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. What does the curtain separate? Well, the most holy place in the temple where God's presence resides from the holy place which is in the front of the temple. Why the cloud of smoke from the incense? So the high priest won't die. Think about that. Here in chapter 5, Revelation 5, 8, we have the incense of the saints is being offered up before God, before the Lamb. With the incense in Leviticus, where was the presence of God? He was above the ark cover, between the angels, behind the curtain. Where is the presence of God and the Lamb here in Revelation? On the throne, between the angels. The four living beings around the throne and the incense is being offered up, which is the prayers of all the people. In other words, we are now at a time when we get in Revelation chapter 5, where we are no longer prohibited from coming into the presence of God. If you remember when Yeshua gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished, and the outer gates 
on the walls sprung open, the outer gate of the temple sprung open, and the curtain tore in half, and you could see straight through to the throne of God. Hmm. Also, let's look in Psalm 114, or 141, please. 141, verses 1 and 2. This is a Psalm of David. Adonai, I have called you. Come to me quickly. Listen to my plea when I call you. Let my prayer be like incense. Incense set before you. That's our prayers going up. My uplifted hands like an evening sacrifice. We'll do more on prayers as incense a little later on. When Bob Heise wrote the original outline for this teaching, and that was so some 30 years ago, he wrote something that's even more true now than it really was then. Even more intense, if you will. So let me quote it for you. He said, The saints of God on earth are now becoming increasingly more despised. Our opinions and values are of little value, are no importance. In fact, they're beginning to be viewed as reactionary and antisocial, anti-establishment. That was 30 years ago. This Psalm 141 reminds us that the prayers of the believers are precious to God, like the sweet-smelling incense in the golden bowls. All right, still in Revelation 5, moving ahead again to verse 9. We're going to look at 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song. You know, we need to talk about this being the 24 elders singing that were just singing in verse 8. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered at the cost of blood. You ransomed for God's persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them into a kingdom for God to rule, koanem, priests, to serve him, and they will rule over the earth. Wow. Let's start with the term for song. It's a genetic term in the Greek. In Greek literature, it means that any subject could be the content, but it's interesting that in Brit Hadishah in New Testament, it refers always to that which is sacred. In New Testament, the song will always be sacred. The word new is inserted here. They sang a new song. The word new inserted here is a recurring theme all through Revelation. A new this and a new that. And here they're singing a new song. The Greek signifies fresh rather than recent. Think about that. This new song is fresh rather than recent. It was wrote down a long time ago. What is this song here? What is in this song here? What is in this song here is quality as opposed to time. Quality as opposed to time. We need to note that the language persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation has been used by some to support the position of replacement theology, that animal sacrifices and the racial exclusiveness is brought to a close and a new era is coming, but it really doesn't say that. It's taken out of context and put in to make somebody's theology feel true to them. It doesn't even indicate that this is replacement theology. Certainly, it indicates the establishment of a body of believers drawn from every people, nation, and language. But let's impose a Romans 11 passage. We can only understand Scripture when it's in the context of all other Scripture. Romans 11, 16 through 24. This is a long passage, so stay with me. Now, if the hala, 
That's the loaf we have up here on Shabbat in the morning. If the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. Next. So you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True. But so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. To the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness toward you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in, because God, because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Boy, you study that for a while and you break down that for a while and that says a ton, doesn't it? This really is what people from every tribe, language, people, and nation are. You're grafted in. Grafted into the root, which is Israel. Which is Israel. And the song gives tribute to the Lamb who is worthy. The basis of worthiness is threefold here. Number one, because the Lamb was slaughtered, this language indicates the slaughtering of a Passover lamb, a sacrifice, but implied is the carrying out of it in a violent manner. Number two, because the lamb ransomed persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation, ransomed is an interest. Other translations may have used purpose. The thought here is ransomed, so stern, I believe, is correct in the complete Jewish Bible. But the Greek word denotes a commercial transaction. The Greek word denotes a commercial transaction. The word is like if one purchased a slave. It's like we would go out and purchase a slave, pay money for him, a commercial transaction, and then set the slave free. That's the thought conveyed here. And that's what God did through the Lamb, through the blood of the Lamb. He has purchased men and he has set them free from every tribe, language, nation, and people. The slavery out of which we have been purchased is the bondage of sin. That's the slavery that we've been purchased out of. Purchased for God, not for ourselves. So here again we have the will of God and the will of the Lamb. Here again we have the will of God and the will of the Lamb. Through his blood, he purchased men for God. That was the will of God. The purchase is not exclusive, but it is universal in scope. The purchase is not exclusive, but is universal in scope. All of man fall under this purchase. The result of this is, number three, a kingdom for God to rule and priests to serve him, to serve God. Now, there are two thoughts here. One, the work of the Lamb creates a kingdom wherein the redeemed are thought of collectively as his kingdom and individuals are thought of as koanim, as priests. 
God deals with us on both a nation and kingdom level and on an individual level. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, the king's priests, a holy nation, a people for God to possess. Why? In order for you to declare the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The same thought is here in Revelation chapter 5. God's rule on earth is in view here. A world order having evil powers and principalities is not thought of here as being in an eternal sense. But a ruling kingdom of those who were purchased by the Lamb is thought of as being in an eternal sense. This then is the basis of the Lamb's worthiness. There was no one who could in perfect purity and sinlessness and selflessness this perfect love, who could give himself in the exercise of perfect love for the world of man except the Lamb. He is the worthy one. Hebrews, Messianic Jews 5, please, verses 8 and 9. Even though he was the Son, he learned obedience through his sufferings. And after he had been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who would obey him. Let's look again at this. Even though he was the son, he learned obedience through his sufferings. And after he had been brought to the goal, he became the source of eternal deliverance to all who obeyed him. Take that to verse 10, please. Since he had been proclaimed by God as Kohen Gadol to be compared with Melchizedek. Melchizedek. If you've never studied Melchizedek, set aside a week. It's fascinating. In Revelation 5.10, Complete Jewish Bible says that they, the Kohanim, the priests, the believers, will rule over the earth. The Lamb will be the high priest. The ones that were purchased will be given worldwide dominion under the Lamb. This is the millennium. This is the millennium. I want you to think about something now. And that is that we who currently live on earth as believers actually do have a form of rule in place now under the Lamb, and it's through prayer. It's through prayer. We don't think of prayer this way, and maybe we should. We have the ability through prayer to, in a sense, rule. Not take over and be the in charge, but we have the power to alter history as it's being made, not alter God's purpose. His rule and purpose will be carried out, but history. So how can we alter history? How can we alter history? Well, Pay attention, because the scripture tells us how, if we'll just do it. Matthew twenty four twenty, Pray that you will not have to escape in winter or on Shabbat. Think about that. That gives us control of time through our prayer. We're told that we can pray that we don't have to escape in winter or on Shabbat. That gives us control of time through prayer. Not a change in purpose. We're still going to have to escape. We're still going to have to get off the world. But it gives us control of time, not in winter, not on Shabbat. There will be no reason for someone to look back and say, do you remember what happened on January on Shabbat? Not if we're obedient. And if we exercise our opportunity to rule through prayer. And to me, that was a wow. We're in Matthew. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. Then he said to his, this is Yeshua, then he said to his Talmudim, his disciples, the harvest is rich, but the workers are few. 
Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers together in his harvest. That's an instruction to his disciples. Not just the eleven that were standing before him there. That's an instruction to us as well. And everyone that's become a disciple of him down through history. Do we have a clue how much we could do if we were just being obedient in prayer? We could put a real dent in the adversary's power base. The potential harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers together in his harvest. That is ruling through prayer, to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers together in his harvest. This thought of the believer's ruling shouldn't be lost on those ruling the earth right now, for we can rule through prayer. These are just two examples I've given you. If this were not the case, prayers would be meaningless, is the point. This kind of ruling, though, is hidden from the world, but it shouldn't be hidden from us. The world can't observe it. It can't understand it. It won't acknowledge it. But in the millennium, the ruling will be visible and fully apparent to all alive at that time. Believers will reign in every visible manner, but that doesn't mean that we don't reign right now through prayer if we'll simply go about it. Whatever you ask for, written in God's will and purpose, will be given to us. Think about this. Think about what a mess that we'd be in without prayer. We'll close with that. Next week we'll finish Revelation 5 and begin looking at chapter 6, which will detail for us the breaking of the seals. And we'll begin to look at You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program. Let's do a little review to get us up to speed before we plow the new ground. In Revelation 4, we saw that John had been taken up into heaven in a vision. He sees 24 elders and four living beings who would be angelic beings. These were surrounding a throne on which someone was sitting who would be later identified as Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And this God of heaven's armies is later seen to have a scroll in his hand. The question goes out to everyone in the heavens, on earth and under the earth, who is worthy to open the scroll, and it seemed apparent that there was no one worthy. John is really upset by this because his theology held that there was no one, or that there was one, that was worthy to break the scrolls. Then one of the twenty-four elders spoke to John and said, The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has won the right to open the scroll, to break the seals. The scene goes on. The Lion of the tribe of Judah appears as a lamb that looks like it had been slaughtered, this is an idiom looking like a lamb that looks as has been slaughtered. It's an idiom for one who has been resurrected. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, John says, I watched as the lamb broke the first of the seven seals. And the first of the four living beings said in a thundering voice, which was an indication that he spoke for God. He says in this thundering voice, Go, 
Most translations say come, but the complete Jewish Bible chooses to use go. This is the releasing of the horse and rider to do his thing. So let's pick this up then in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 1, do verses 1 and 2. Next I watched as the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings say in a thundering voice, Go. I looked, and there in front of me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and it was given a crown, and he rode off as a conqueror to conquer. As we do each of these seals, I'm going to give you first how the dispensationalists, the pre-tribulationists, interpret this, then give you some other opinions, including my own, as to what this is saying to us. The pre-tribulationists, for instance, believe that the rapture of the church is going to take place before the tribulation process begins. That's how they got the title of being pre-tribbers. Test all things. This tribulation period is the seven-year period that most people believe begins when Israel signs a treaty guaranteeing their peace, and that the person they sign this treaty with will be revealed ultimately as the false or anti-Messiah. The position of the pre-tribulationists is that during this period the rapture has already occurred. The time in which these seals are opened would be in that time, and that the one who goes forth on this white horse conquering is the false messiah. And there's a lot of people that hold to that theory. There is a substantial belief in this out there in the greater body of messiah. That's from the pre-tribulationist view. But let's look at this from another point of view now. This opening of the seal is going to be a recurring theme. It is believed that the first four seals are a unit. They belong together, showing the self-defeating nature of sin and the judgment of God through the wrath of man. The next two seals after this unit of four would be seals five and six and would deal with things in heaven rather than things on earth. Then the last seal, the seventh, stands apart from the first six in that it ushers in the next series of visions, which are the trumpets or shofars. The next series of trumpets being the trumpets or shofars. This pattern of four, then two, then one is repeated with the trumpets or shofars. In this first vision, when the seal is broken, John says, I looked, and there in front of me I saw... What John saw was a white horse. We saw some mention of horses and the colors of horses in our study of Zechariah, so let's go there for a minute. First scripture we want to look at is Zechariah 1.8. Zechariah 1.8. It was night, and I saw there before me a man riding a russet-colored horse. He stood among the myrtle bushes in the valley, and behind him were other horses, russet, chestnut-colored, and white. Then it says in Zechariah 6.3, the third chariot, white horses, and the fourth chariot, spotted gray horses. There's this concept of having a white horse or horses in both of these passages, much like here in Revelation 6.2, but there doesn't seem to be any relationship to a specific meaning of the white horses from passage to passage, including the one we're looking at here in Revelation 6.2. Occasionally we will find someone that is forcing a relationship between what is being said and Zechariah, but I don't see it. I just wanted us to be aware of this. Test all things. First thing that we have to note in Revelation 6-2 is that the horses are mentioned first. The horses are mentioned first. The rider is mentioned second. 
The normal way we see this sort of thing presented is, look, there's a rider on a white horse. Here, though, the horse is mentioned first and the rider second. Second thing we need to be aware of is the color of the horse relates to the rider. Consider that. The color of the horse relates to the rider. The color of the horse has something to do with the rider himself. Generally, the symbolism of a horse has to do with war, but the color white is associated with victory, which in effect is talking about a war. Seemingly, this indicates that this rider has victory in the coming war that's going to be looked at. The emphasis here is that it is in this war that he's riding off to be part of. God's victory comes through war rather than through peace seems to be the symbolism in this case. And then the attention turns to the rider who is specifically identified. But characteristics of the rider help identify him, even though he's not specifically identified. He held a bow, which was a symbol of war, is a symbol for war, which immediately reinforces the symbolism of war given to the horse. And again, the horse is a symbol of victory in war. Now we have the rider holding the bow, which is a symbol of war, and war, which would bring the victory to God instead of peace. Then the rider wears a crown. The crown here, the Greek, is Stephanos. We've seen that word before. It's the crown of a victor. It's not a diadem, the crown of a ruler. It's the crown of the one who is victorious. The kind of crown was used before with the 24 elders. The gold crowns that they were casting towards the throne of Adonai, the God of Heaven's army, were the Stephanos crowns. In Revelation 2.10, it talks about the Stephanos as a crown of the overcomer, where life is given as a crown. The ability to prevail in a war of the manner depicted in Revelation was what God caused the overcomer to do, and the symbolic crown was a Stephanos. Here are some other concepts or theories that people have developed about this first seal and this rider with a bow on the white horse. I'm going to give you about four. There are more, but we need to finish this before Messiah returns. First thought we should be aware of is, some think that this is the Messiah himself on this white horse. This moves to the other end of the spectrum from those that think it might be the false Messiah. But a number of people believe that this is referring to Messiah. The connection that can be possible with this is Revelation chapter 19. There it is clearly Messiah that is riding on a white horse, as mentioned. Others believe that this is a false Messiah. We discuss the pre-tribulation people being of this thought. Others believe that this merely symbolizes the spirit of conquest. And finally, there is a group that believe that this represents the victory of the gospel. The thought of who is on this white horse and what it represents is widespread. There's no real consensus. Thoughts all over the map. One interesting thought, though, is that this has a historical basis. This represents a Parthian king that won a victory over Romans in 62 Common Era. Parthians were known for their bowmanship. Their prowess with the bow as a weapon of war was well known. So let's now turn to Daniel, chapter 7 and verse 23. Daniel 7 and verse 23. This is what he said. 
The fourth animal will be the fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the earth, trample it down, and crush it. This would appear to support those that think the rider on the white horse is the false messiah. I'm not sure that this is complete, that this completely makes their case, but they tie this with the rest of Revelation 6 2, where it says, the rider on the white horse rides off as a conqueror to conqueror. He rides off in conquest. So the rider represents war. The horse represents victory in war. The bow represents war. Apparently, conquest is the only aim of this rider. The fact that he will accomplish this is a foregone conclusion because Scripture says he was given a victor's crown. As we look at this and other riders, we'll notice an essential likeness among all of the riders. Clearly, they belong together. Because of this essential likeness, they clearly belong together. All deal with judgment. Keep that in mind. All deal with judgment. The beating down of earthly powers, the breaking up of earthly peace, the exhausting of earthly wealth, and the destruction of earthly life. So the first horseman, like of the rest of them, could be a woe, the first of the four woes. Denoting war is the first of four woes that we come to, and we have to think of the last century, the 20th century, particularly as we get into the second seal. The 20th century was dominated by war. We're talking big wars here, World War One, World War Two. What basically stopped man in his continuing conquest for world domination? Thermonuclear weapons. That ended the mass massive wars. The fear of destruction in reprisal for an attempted conquest. In the late 1800s, the eternal combustion engine was developed. All kinds of high explosives were developed so that man could, from that point on, go all over the globe and kill each other. And again, the question is, what stopped that? And the fear of Hiro and Nagasaki is the answer. Yes, we had Korea, we had Vietnam, we had the Gulf War, but generally, the big multi-nation wars of the first half of the last century ceased to exist. These were stopped by what is termed as MAD. M-A-D, Mutually Assured Destruction. But now we're back on the edge again. Look at what might have happened between India and Pakistan just a few weeks ago when they were venting at each other. The big powers went to them and said, look at what you're on the brink of. Showed them if they went into a nuclear conflict, because both have the uh, nuclear weapons, they have the bombs. How would this affect the rest of the world? And they were talking radiation in the United States as a possibility from all of that. Consider that now there are others that are very close to having nuclear weaponry and the means of delivering them. And some estimates say this could be in as little as two, two to five years. Those who have the sense of martyrdom being a cool thing are the ones now being close to developing nuclear weapons. And martyrdom is a good thing in their minds as long as the infidel is destroyed. I think this first horseman that they're talking about here is all about war, and I don't think it is the false messiah. Scripture goes out of the way, goes out of its way to show us that the false messiah is not victorious, but that it is God and Messiah that are victorious. I think that this is a war being in place over peace, as long as the last kingdom of man is in place.
and the lust for conquest is there. A chief tenet of Islam is that the world must be conquered for Islam no matter what cost. This is not a very politically correct to say, but so be it. So now let's look at the second seal. Revelation 6, 3 and 4. Then he broke the second seal, and I heard the second living being say, Go, and another horse went out, a red one. And its rider was given the power to take peace away from the earth and make people slaughter each other. He was given a great sword. Keep note of that great sword. Let's see what the dispensationalist pre-trib view of this would be. With the second horseman of the apocalypse, peace is removed from the earth. The opposite of peace is what we've been looking at all along, war. This is speaking of the period of peace and false security that existed before the tribulation, and it's now shattered during the tribulation. The false messiah comes as a conqueror to conquer in his worldwide conquest, and the tribulation begins with a war. There are three major wars that are going to take place during this period of tribulation, and the second seal is the first being broken, is telling us this is the first of the three wars. The second war will be about in the middle, about three and a half years in, and the third will be the battle of Armageddon that occurs at the end. That position holds that the second seal is the opening of the first war that begins the tribulation period. So let's look at some other thoughts on the second seal. With the opening of the second seal, another of the four living beings gives the order to go to the second horseman. Not the same horse, just a different color. It makes it very clear another horse went out, a separate and distinct symbol. Where these horses are coming from is not mentioned to us. This horse is a fiery red. Probably the symbolism of this description, and there are two thoughts on this. These would be bloodshed. Red would indicate bloodshed. But it also could relate sin to sin. So how do we comport red color with sin? Well, there's some scriptural support with this. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, please. It says, Come now, says Adonai. Let's talk this over together. Even if your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Even if they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Note the tying of red and white together here because our first horse was white. He's going to be involved in this war as well. And the second one is red. And he's also going to be involved in this war. Maybe the one that creates the war that the white horse rider has to be involved in. Some tie this fiery red color of the horse to sin via this passage. I'm not all sure that works well, but it's here. Here again, the rider isn't described in any physical terms, but is given power. And note that that power is not inherent in the writer himself. What power is he given? To take peace from the earth. This term, like in verse 2, is directed towards war and conquest. The power talks here of international and civil strife. Perhaps international wars, even in civil wars. Look at what's been going on over in Syria for the last six years. 
It's just been a gigantic ongoing civil war that people have been going down. Look at what's been going on in Afghanistan that we've been involved in. Some believe we're no longer talking about large political entities fighting one another, like in the two world wars, but it may be more ethnic, more ethnic. It may be more a civil war type thing. The second thing is the power influences men to make men slay each other. This power that's loosed through this red horse and its rider influences men to make men slay each other. Complete Jewish Bible uses the term slaughter. Slaughter. The usual word for slaughter is not used here. That would simply mean to kill. That word that is usually... Here the word used indicates to butcher. To butcher each other. A form of inhumanity, as if war could ever be humane. But this takes it to a really gross level. The first writer was given a crown. In the same sort of language, the second writer was given given a large sword. Large sword indicating that the war that that sword's involved in is going to be huge, large. The bow was a characteristic of the first writer. It was his very nature. It says he had a bow. The sword is different. It's given to the writer. First writer had a bow when he showed up. Second writer is given a bow. We have to take note of these things. The sword represents the international strife and civil war. And this writer, interestingly, is not said to kill anyone. Nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that he personally kills anyone. Notice that. This isn't somebody who goes around slaughtering people. What he does is take peace away. He takes peace away. This causes men to slaughter each other as the lack of peace increases. The judgment is in the form of man's inhumanity against man. What may be involved here is that this woe takes away any false peace that the earth might have thought they had. Some believe that a period of peace and false security that will be in place, Israel is going to sign this seven-year contract that is going to be broken three and a half years in. They're going to believe that there's going to be this sense of false peace. We're not going to have any problems until all of a sudden it explodes in their faces. Some believe that a period of peace and false security is going to be shattered here. And this is the first of the coming three major wars. It's a picture, if 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 we're paying attention, at the beginning of the tribulation period that's indicating what's going to happen midway through this tribulation period, if you will. This is the first of the three major wars in the dispensational view. Now, there's also this thought. We're facing internationally something that we've never faced before. We're now facing internationally something that we've never faced before. And all of the commentaries written to this point show that they have never guessed it. Commentaries that were written back when I was a youngster. With regard to the terrorism threat that we have in the world today, how much money has the United States appropriated now for the potential that this war could come? Well, it's billions and billions if you really look at it and investigate. We hear warnings all the time. 
The government's trying to recruit millions of American citizens to be domestic spies. I don't know if you've heard any of those, but I've picked up on those. American citizens spying on other Americans. This is an interesting thought, and I'm not going to put myself on a limb by saying that we're here now, uh, but I believe we are in events that are leading up to this. When this happens really is too early to tell, but this second writer is going to take peace from the earth, and he's going to do it in a multitude of ways. What will happen if there's another major terrorist event against the U.S. homeland? What will be the repercussions and fallout if the U.S. moves against Iraq, or Iran, or Syria? What happens when those that are interfacing with us, such as mailmen, repairmen, and others, begin to think out people over what they think they see, or maybe who they don't like? See, we're looking ahead to really at human bombs that are going to go off against us. Won't be explosives, but they're going to cause casualties. We also potentially could have chemical and biological warfare in this country as people that are coming in now, particularly through our southern border, but also out of Canada, that goal is to overthrow the government that we have in this country. You know, eventually if they get their hands on weapons, they're going to use them. They could even smuggle nuclear weapons into this country. And I believe it'll come to a point that it is only God and Messiah that we're going to be able to depend on. That's what all this is really giving us information to lead up and point to. It's only God and Messiah that we can depend on. And notice, unlike the first writer, if you consider the first writer picturing political entities like nations fighting each other, here there's no political entity of that type. There's no definable political entity. The turmoil is caused by the taking away of peace well beyond dealing with territorial borders. We went into Afghanistan and knocked that regime down, but that didn't knock out the problem. It's still going on. See, it's just beyond geopolitical borders. The problem still exists really throughout the whole world. I think it's apparently at some level in, in every country. So there's a thought based on the signs of our times. We're to watch the signs of our times to see how they correspond with Scripture. But let's see where it goes before we say this is it, that we're here already. Let's just say that these passages make more sense now than they did 25 years ago. Let's look at the third seal, Revelation 6, 5 and 6, please. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Go! And I looked, and there in front of me was a black horse. Its rider held in his hand a pair of scales. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living beings say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for the same price, but don't damage the oil or the wine. That verse 6 we're really going to look at. The Lamb opens the third seal, and again in rotation, the third living being before the throne calls out, Go. If you remember from chapter 4 when we looked at that, first of these living beings had a face like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a man, and the fourth one had a face like an eagle. The third one, the one with a face like a man, is called out, go, and the horse that appears is black. Now, normally the symbolism of black would be mourning or grief. Here it is associated with famine. 
Here it is associated with famine. And the writer here is described as holding a pair of scales in his hand. Literally, the Greek used here would be directly translated as a balance beam. A balance beam. What John saw was a balance beam. And the third living being calls the black horse and a voice in verse 6 makes an audible statement. This is not the third living being, but another voice in this Verse 6, it makes an audible statement. What sounded like a voice from among the four living beings, but the source isn't identified in the statement, gives information on the economic condition of the earth at the time that the seals will be broken. And that is two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for the same price, but don't damage the oil or the wine. Most translations will have quartz here for the measure. Complete Jewish Bible uses a form of measure of pounds, just a different form of measure. The actual amount given for wheat, where it says two pounds, is really about 1.92, just a little something of detail that you can throw away. It's indicating what it would take to sustain one man for one day. That's what the money that you would have would sustain that you would be able to buy if you bought wheat enough to feed one person. This indicates that a family unit would starve if the single unit income was spent on wheat. Barley, considerably cheaper, would be available at roughly a three-to-one ratio over wheat. Barley, if it were available, would sustain a family of three. It's interesting in some of these commentaries People have tried to figure all of this out in strange ways. And they went to an inflation factor in most cases of somewhere between 8 and 16 as to what changes in the, our money's ability to support us. Let's round that off to 10 because 10 is an easy number to deal with. If it's in the, the factor is 10, then a dollar that we have today would end up being only worth 10 cents in value. If you make $500 a week today, when this goes into play, it would now be worth $50 to buy food with when this sets in. 10 to 1 inflation rate. Now, this is hypothetical, but it points to a condition of barley being the sustainable product for our existence. Now, this is coming at the time the seals is broken. It's telling us that all the resources that the common working people can generate are consumed just to keep away from starvation. That's what this is in essence telling us. Tell us that there's a great dearth, but not absolute famine. What is depicted here is a worldwide famine condition as a result of this war and civil and international strife portrayed in this second horse. And the last phrase says, do not damage the oil or the wine. Complete Jewish Bible uses damage. The actual Greek word is hurt. It's an interesting word because the Greek word hurt is made up of a prefix, a negative prefix attached to the word justice. In other words, what's translated hurt up here, don't damage the oil or the wine is in effect telling us 
that there's no justice in this phrase that's being given to us about what we're going to have to deal with as common folks, but yet what the wealthy are going to be able to deal with. In effect, no justice translated to the English word hurt or damage. Portion, this portion of the verse has been translated in various ways, that while the necessities of life are scarce is the main thing, not so the non-necessities. It's going to be hard to find enough barley to eat, but the oil and the wine, they'll be plentiful. You just don't have any money to buy them. That is, the luxuries of life are going to be plentiful. They will be in abundance. Another thought is that there are two class system that this is talking about. There's going to be the very rich and the very poor, perhaps no middle class at all. And the rich aren't worried about anything, and the working class is near starvation. Regular use of oil and wine has always been associated with affluence. The Greek indicates no justice when it comes to oil and wine. Thirdly, some believe that the oil and wine could be symbols for medicinal purposes. We get all kinds of thoughts filter in here. Remember the Good Samaritan? He used oil and wine to treat the injuries of the traveler he found on the road up to Jerusalem, lying alongside that road. Also, this third horseman with the scales becomes, well, let me put it differently. This third horseman with scales measures the economic structure of the world at that time. He's giving us a measure of the economic structure of the world at that time. The thought is that in times of scarcity, food is weighed. It is not given out by volume. It is weighed, in other words, rationed. Notice how the complete Jewish Bible translates this. It translates it in weight measure. Two pounds of wheat, six pounds of barley. The balance beam brings one of this kind, one to this kind of conclusion. Food's going to be rationed, weighed out at the time. There's an interesting reference in regard to the scarcity of food when it's, when it's weighed. Leviticus 26, 26, please. This is, this is God speaking. He says, I will cut off your supply of bread so that ten women will bake your bread in one oven and dole out your bread by weight and you will eat but not be satisfied. I want us to think about this now. I want us to really think about this. I'll cut off your supply of bread so that ten women will bake your bread in one oven. Now, if you've got ten women who are baking bread and they're all baking a loaf of bread, they're going to need ten ovens. That's what this is indicating. But you've got ten women whose goal is to bake bread, but there's only one oven. And so you're only going to get one loaf that's going to have to be divided among all of these ten families. And you will eat, but not be satisfied. Hmm. The lamb breaks the fourth seal. The fourth living being makes the call that sends out the fourth horse. This horse sent out at this time is going to be pallid. Revelation 6, 7, 8. When he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living being say, Go, and I looked, and there in front of me was a pallid, sickly, red-looking horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Shaol followed behind him. They were given authority to kill one quarter of the world by war, by famine, by plagues, and with the wild animals of the earth. 
See, all of those listed there at the end of that last sentence are going to be involved in the killing off of one quarter of the world population. War, famine, plagues, and the wild animals of the earth. This horse sent out this time is pallid, pale green, sickly looking. That's what's interesting is the Greek word used here is coloris, C-O-L-O-R-E-S in the English. A word from which we get the English word chlorine. Chlorese, chlorese means yellowish green. And if you look at chlorine, it's kind of a yellowish green. Actually, if you look at the rainbow, look at a rainbow someday, if you can see one that's large enough and bright enough between the blue and the yellow, you'll find this shade of yellow green is actually available in a, ra in a rainbow. An unusual color for a horse, wouldn't you say? The color is symbolic of the color of a corpse in the very early stages of decomposition. Because what this is pointing to is death. It's pointing to a fourth of the world being taken out. Yellowish green. And the other writers had a sign to identify him. The first writer had a bow. The second writer had a sword. The third writer had a scales. And this writer here, though, is named Death and needs no sign to identify himself. There's no indicator as to who this writer is, only his name. Death occurs through pestilence. The Greek word is death, but pestilence could be substituted. Then it says that Sha'ol followed the writer named Death. Most English translators will use the word Hades. A few will use hell instead of Sha'ol. Closely following behind Sha'ol is death. Sha'ol is a place of departed spirits. Death and Sheol are personified in this verse. They were personified in Revelation 1, 17, middle of 17 through 18, please. He placed his right hand upon me and said, Don't be afraid. This is John speaking of Yeshua. Yeshua placed his right hand upon me, John, and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last Verse 18, the living one, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I, that is Yeshua, hold the keys to death and Sheol. Well, that's probably as neat a thing as we can read out of this whole thing. If he's in charge of it, then he's able to preserve us. But let's go take this to Revelation 20, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them, and they were judged, each according to what he had done. Now remember Revelation 20, we're getting down to the end and the final of everything that's going on. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them, and they were judged, each according to what he had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now. Is Hades not hell? Why are we throwing hell into the lake of fire? Isn't the lake of fire hell? You see, this requires a whole greater renewal of definition, which hopefully we can get into before we get through the end of this, end of this study, if you will. Death and Sheol are personified. There's one horse, a pallid, sickly green horse, like the color of a corpse, but there are two figures. 
It is clear from the text that Sheol, Hades, is not riding the same horse with death, and that Sheol is not riding another horse. There's only one horse. Sheol just follows death. Remember the rider death, or we might say pestilence, is the cause of all kinds of destroying agents. The personified death here, the personified death here is the cause of all destroying agents. And we again see that power was given. The authority was given. Revelation 6, 8. They were given authority to kill one quarter of the world by war, by famine, by plagues, and with the wild animals of the earth. So we're seeing that death and shoal are under control of the sovereign God, i.e. in the form of Messiah. In Revelation 1.18, we looked at earlier, Yeshua said that death and shoal have been given to me. They're under his control, control of the risen Messiah. Here, death and shoal have only the power that he gives them, but the power that he gives them here is awe-inspiring. One-fourth of the world's population is slain in the ways mentioned. What's the world's population right now? Roughly 7.7 billion, give or take. So what we're talking about is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.8 billion people being killed at this time. And that's why people don't like to study Revelation in depth. They don't want to hear stuff like this. One-fourth of the earth's population. First of all, by sword. And the word used here for sword is the broadsword as used by the barbarian people, the sword carried by this second writer. It's also used in two other places. First in Genesis. This is interesting. Genesis 3.24, please. So he drove the man out. This is Adam being driven out by the Holy Spirit, by probably pre-incarnate Yeshua. So he drove the man out and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the Keravim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Hebrew here, when translated into Greek, becomes the same word that's used in Revelation 6.4. Also, we need to look at Luke 2.33. Yeshua's father and mother were marveling at the things that Shimon was saying about him. Understand that they've taken Yeshua on the eighth day of his life from birth to the temple to be circumcised. And one of those in the temple that was a watchman on the wall looking for the coming Messiah, that was his assigned position, sees him and identifies him. And Shimon were, were saying things to, to uh, Joseph and Miriam, Mary. And they were marveling at the things he was saying to them. And Shimon, Simon, blessed them and said to the child's mother, Miriam, Mary, this child will cause many in Israel to fall and to rise. He will become a sign whom people will speak against, like the whole nation. Moreover, a sword will pierce your own heart too. All this will happen in order to reveal many people's inmost thoughts. So, this was at the temple, again, when Yeshua's Brit Milah, circumcision, and as part of the blessing given by Simon, one of God's watchmen. He would be in the temple mount because the temple mount was really 
one of the walls of Jerusalem. One of the eastern walls of Jerusalem was the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. And he was looking for the coming Messiah. The broad sword will pierce your own heart too, it says. The sword of the barbarian people. That's interesting. The slaughter spoken of in Revelation 6-4 could speak of massive civil slaughter or perhaps other kind of war. Then there's famine, death by starvation, pestilence or plagues. We have the AIDS thing that's going on now with probably 14,000 people a day being infected by the AIDS virus. Can you imagine that 14,000 people a day being infected by the AIDS virus? But there are other things that are breaking out. For instance, I don't know if any of you have paid any attention to this, but measles outbreak is going on around the world. And people think, well, measles, you know, some kids get the measles, and that's that's a bad thing. But understand that there have been 1,200 kids contract measles on the island of Madagascar alone in the past seven months. The number of measles cases reported worldwide in the first three months of 2019 has tripled compared to the same time last year, according to the World Health Organization. They said that provisional data indicated a clear trend that all regions of the world are seeing measles outbreaks. Africa has witnessed the worst dramatic rise up to 700%. The agent said the actual numbers may be far greater since only 1 in 10 cases globally are reported. So you can just let your imaginations go places with that. The largest measles outbreak in Madagascar's history has struck the island country with over 115,000 documented cases, except they're saying probably only 1 in 10 gets documented. Well, that's a million hundred and fifty thousand cases potentially on Madagascar. I'm not going to bear you any further into that. Anyhow, I believe that the plagues that speak of are going to become more virulent even than AIDS and measles. And then finally, it says wild animals. Some people think that food will be so scarce that the wild animals will attack man as a food source. Generally, we don't care about wild animals today. We live in cities. Wild animals don't bother us. And we have firearms, right? But the question is, or when will men have firearms that could prevent this at the very end of the age when the government's cracking down on everybody? But it says here that wild animals will be involved in this killing off of the quarter of the world's population. Think about this as well. There is an element of the world elite today who believe that the only way to preserve the earth is through population control. They will actually be encouraged by a fourth of the world's population being killed off. Their minds, it will ultimately help the Mother Earth heal itself. They will do nothing to prevent any of this. Some will even encourage this killing off of these people. One more stop. Let's go to Ezekiel 14.21. Here's what Adonai Elohim says. Even if I inflict my four dreadful judgments on Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild animals, and plagues, to eliminate both its humans and its animals, there will still be left a remnant in it to be brought out, because it's not going to affect you and me. 
and the rest of the true believers around the world. So it appears that the days that Jerusalem faced a couple of examples that you can use were back in 586 B.C. and again in 70 Common Era might give us some insight as to what it may be like worldwide in the days of the seals being broken. This fourth horseman of the apocalypse, in my mind, represents what man does to man, what man is going to perpetrate against himself. We have to stop here. We'll start then with the fifth seal with two weeks. There's a lot in the fifth seal. Find the truth on Solace Radio. All right. Tonight, we're going to finish chapter 5 of Revelation and edge into the beginning of chapter 6. Verses 4 and 5 are really a unit if we look at the construction of the book of Revelation. Very important as these two chapters prepare us for what's coming. John was taken up into heaven in a vision. He sees someone sitting on a throne. This someone is later described by the four living beings as Adonai, the God of heaven's armies. And they are constantly worshiping him. The text says, holy, holy, holy is Adonai, the God of heaven's armies. The one sitting on the throne has laying in his right hand a scroll, a scroll that was writing on both sides that's sealed with seven seals. And then there's a determination takes place as to who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And in the process of determining this, no one in creation is found to be worthy. Nobody on heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Now I'm going to pause for a minute where it says, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Take note that there's three sites given as a description here because we're going to encounter something to do with this a little bit later on. John, of course, is very distraught over this. God's plan can't go forward. Then one of the elders advises John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. He has won the right to do this. And John sees this one that's worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to break these seals. John sees him as a lamb looking like it had been slaughtered. Quite a bunch of pictures are being painted for us as we go through this. He, this lamb, looking has been like it's been slaughtered, has won the right to break the seals and open the scroll because it was with his blood that he ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation for God and made them into a kingdom that God ultimately can rule. And also from this group come priests to serve God and to help him rule over the earth. So let's pick this up, if you will, in Revelation 5.11, please. Then I looked and I heard the sound of a vast number of angels, thousands and thousands, millions and millions, and they were all around the throne the living beings and the elders, and they shouted out, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. These others are added to the scene around the throne. It's some more of the angelic host, if you will, recorded as being present. And it's interesting that this does not tell us whether this is all of the angelic host or not. 
only that it's thousands and thousands, millions and millions, a vast number of angels. These are not people who have lived on the earth and then gone to heaven. These are angels, but they're also created beings. This passage starts off with the statement, then I looked. Back at the start of chapter 4, the language was a little different there. It said, after these things I looked. This is a formula language to introduce a new vision. The introduction to the passage here in 5.11 is after these things. It has after these things missing. Has after these things missing, indicating that this vision that we're looking at now has not changed from when it was initiated. It's a continuation of the vision that had its beginning back at the start of chapter 4. Complete Jewish Bible says, the sound of a vast number of angels. Other translations say the voice of a vast number of angels. Either way, it seems indicative of worship that's going on there. If we continue from the new song in verses 9 and 10, this has to be indicative of worship that's going on. It seems that these thousands and thousands, millions of millions are praising the Lamb as with a single voice. Their praise is in such unity that it's like a single sound that's going on, or a single voice. And the number of angels given here is very similar to the way it was expressed in Daniel 7. This is a very interesting passage in reference to uh, Revelation 4 and 5, where we're seeing this merging of the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb. There is Adonai, God of heaven's army, and the Lamb that looks at been slaughtered. They are separate and distinct, yet they are the same. So let's look at Daniel 7, 9, and 10, please. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. That's what we've got going on now in Revelation, is the Ancient One sitting on his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. Pause there for a second. His throne with the burning wheels. What was the chariot that picked up Elijah? fiery wheels. Verse 10, a stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. Millions and millions stood before him. Here we have the thousands and thousands and millions and millions of angels again. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. Next, Daniel 7.13, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming from the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. What have we got here in Revelation uh, chapter 5? We've got one like a son of man who has come into the presence of the Holy One sitting on his throne. Verse 14. To him was given rulership, glory, and kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages could serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Note the similarity of the language to Revelation 5.11. It's almost as if Daniel was seeing the same vision that John was seeing. What they're both seeing is the same future event, I believe. The Greek the Greek in Revelation 5.11 actually says thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands. Ten thousands times ten thousands. Do the math. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Mm, that's an enormous number. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. 
And this says tens of thousands times tens of thousands. That's millions and millions. And many think that the particular number is not necessarily meant here, that this group of angelic beings is so large that it just comprehensively can't be numbered. Just a vast times vast number of angels. And it appears that they're worshiping the Lamb, the Lamb that appears to have been slain. When we get down into verse 12, there's a phrase that's very interesting, and I want to interject a thought about it here so that we can be considering it as we go through this. See where it says up there, see where it says, receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. These were terms that were reserved for Caesar. In that day and age, these are terms that were were reserved for Caesar. This is a phrase used by worshipers of the emperor cult that was in place at this time in the first century. The Roman emperors had made themselves deities, turned themselves into gods, kind of a type and foreshadow, a picture of what will happen when the false messiah controls the world. He will make himself into a god and demand that he be worshipped. This language was reserved for the veneration of Caesar and the veneration by the Caesars of themselves. And here it is in the book of Revelation being applied to Messiah, challenging the social, cultural, religious definitions of power in the world. Think about that. This is challenging the social, cultural, religious definitions of power in the world. This is a great picture of what is coming. Now think about this. The book of Revelation was supposed to be read continually to the congregations. I'm talking about back in the time of the Caesars in Rome. There was always spies in the congregation. So this was probably not received well by the powers that be that someone, particularly this someone, this Messiah of Israel, was a challenge to Caesar because this was a term being applied to him here that was reserved for use only to the Caesar who had made himself God. Found here, though, applied to the Lamb. Now, this description of the angel goes on. They encircled the throne. We're back in Revelation 5. They encircled the throne. That's very clear. So we get a picture. The four living beings in the center and around the throne, then the 24 elders who were around the throne and the four living beings were all surrounded by this vast innumerable host of angels which encircled all of them. The song of praise is directed at the Lamb who is in the center of the throne. And here, unlike uh, verse uh, chapter 5, verse 6, where it says a lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered, here it says the slaughtered lamb. Here, slaughtered is positioned in the expression to stand as a fact by itself. That's the way it's laid out in the Greek, to stand as a fact by itself. They shout out this praise, which comprises, which comprises seven expressions to set forth the wonders of the Lamb. Notice that number seven again. The idea of perfection copycatted by the Caesars. The first four are qualities that the Lamb possesses. Power, riches, wisdom, and strength. The last three are expressions of the attitude of the worshipers, honor, glory, and praise. This praise is very similar in context to the praise to God in the prayer 
by David in First Chronicles 29:10 through 12, please. Beginning a little ways into verse 10, it reads, Blessed be you, Adonai, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, Adonai, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. The kingdom is yours, Adonai, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. You rule everything. In your hand is power and strength. You have the capacity to make great and to give strength to all. Hmm. Remember that this is praise for the Lamb given here in Revelation 5, but it's the same kind of praise that's shown us in the Old Testament for God Almighty. The same is being applied. So again, we see merger of the two. The same praise that was given God in the Old Testament has been given to the Lamb now in Revelation 5. So we see a merger between the two, yet they are separate and distinct. The right hand of God holding the scroll and the Lamb who was worthy coming to take it. David's blessing has the same kind of language in it with regard to the power and rule. Owning everything the riches. All of these expressions are found in other books in the New Testament. So we can relate the Lamb better now to Yeshua. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.4. Uh, here power and wisdom are described, ascribed to Messiah. It says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this same Messiah is God's power and God's wisdom. Here, Messiah Yeshua is being stated flatly, is God's power and God's wisdom. And in Revelation 5.12, this power and wisdom is ascribed to the Lamb. What about wealth or riches? Let's look at Ephesians 3.8. To me, the least important of all God's holy people was given this privilege of announcing to the Gentiles the good news of the Messiah's unfathomable riches. See, here Paul is talking about Messiah. But in 5.12, it comports with the Lamb. Messiah is the Lamb. What about strength? Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shout out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Again, talking about Messiah. On that day when He comes, He will be glorified by His holy people and admired by all who have trusted in Him. Just a couple more. Honor and glory. Let's take that to Messianic Jews 2.9. But we do see Yeshua, who indeed was made for a little while lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. That just leaves praise. So let's then go to Mark 11, verse 8 through 10. Many people carpeted the road with their clothing. This is Yeshua making his first visit that Sunday morning up to the temple on the last week that he's going to be going up that we will end on the execution stake. Many people carpeted the road with their clothing while others spread out green branches which they had cut in the fields. Those who were ahead and those behind shouted, Please deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Baruch HaBabashem Adonai. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, and you in the highest heaven, please deliver us. Wow. 
Isn't that interesting? These are just samples. Now, understand that. These are just samples to make the point that the connection between the Lamb and Messiah Yeshua is real. Everything that's said in the praise of the Lamb in Revelation 5.12 has been said about Yeshua someplace previously in Scripture. Understand that. Everything that's been being said about the Lamb in Revelation 5.12 has been said about Yeshua sometime before this. We can find additional passages with no problems if we want to spend the time. This Mark 11 that we're looking at is taking place on T minus four days and counting to the execution stake. He's on his way up to become the sin offering, the sin sacrifice for the world. This is the entry of Messiah into Jerusalem from Beth Bethpage, to present himself as the Bikarim of Israel. Does everybody know what a Bikarim is? A Bikarim is the first fruits. You see Bikarim in the Hebrew scripture is talking about the first fruits. Messiah is on his way into Jerusalem on this day to present himself as the Bikarim, and he's coming from the house of the early fruit, Beth Fagay, to do this. This is referring to the root of David here. This is speaking of Yeshua, and this is the praise that's said here, Baruch HaBashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these, again, are examples of each of the seven applications of adoration to the Lamb being applied to Yeshua at other places in the New Testament. One last thing I want to look at with you in with regard to this praise for the Lamb. Look at how this compares with a statement in, in Philippians chapter 2. See, this is talking about Messiah. Earlier in the song, it talks about him being in the form of God, emptying himself taking this form as a human being, even to death on the execution stake. So Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God raised him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that in honor of the name given Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai to the glory of God the Father. This particular phrase by those millions upon millions of angelic beings in verse 5 comports with the scriptures. There was nothing that scripture hadn't already said about Yeshua the Messiah that was mentioned here in conjunction with the Lamb. Everything that's mentioned here has been mentioned about Yeshua already. So, having having kind of cleaned up those first couple of verses, let's go to Revelation 5, 12, uh, 13, and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea, yes, everything in them, saying, to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belong praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. The four living beings said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. First thing we want to notice here, back in verse 3, I ask you to take notice that there was a usual three-point dimension of creation spoken to. Give me the 5-3 again. But no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll. This is an unusual expression. Now, there's that three mentions, three expressions mentioned. Now, back to Revelation 5:13 and 14. I heard every creature 
in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea. There's a fourth been added. Notice here that this is now a fourfold division. Creation is expressed as not only in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, but also on the sea. You can take that to, to really read most translations say, in the sea. Another dimension has been added. And the language clearly emphasizes here that all four are included in this mighty chorus of praise that's being sung by these zippity-doo thousands of angels that we can't count the number of that's going on. John clearly hears every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea giving the praise to the Lamb. There is no creature, no matter where found, that doesn't recognize the superior worth of the Lamb. And the song that they sing in praise is not the same song as the preceding song. The attributes praise are in a different order. They're not all the same. First of all, here in verse 13, the word power is from the Greek word kroktos. It's from the Greek word proktos, meaning power. This is different from the Greek word dynamis, which is used in verse 12 and again translated power. Dynamis is where we get the word dynamo from. Dynamo is a turbine that manufactures electricity in the, in the sense of miter miracles. Here in verse 13, Kroktos is talking about power, but it's talking more about greatness of that power and the dominion, if you will, of that power. It has direction towards rule rather than strength. A greatness or a dominion. Also in the preceding phrase, praise of verse 12, the whole seven are grouped under a single article. The complete Jewish Bible really doesn't show the definite articles that are in the Greek. Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive the power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Then down in verse 13 is a definite article in the Greek before each of the four. To the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belong not just praise, honor, glory, and power, but the praise, the honor, the glory, and the power, giving separate emphasis to each and every one of these. Also here, there's no mention of worthy. Verse 12, worthy is the slaughtered Lamb to receive. The term worthy is left out here in verse 13. The achievement of redemption is not focused on here, but rather the praise of the persons themselves. The praise is what's being focused on. And this song of praise ends linking the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. And here again we see that the Lamb is essentially integrated by the praise with God. In other words, the Lamb is with God and the Lamb is God. So how does this comport with the Old Testament? Let's look at one example, just in case anyone ever asks you. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 or 6, depending upon your translation. It says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Dominion will rest on his shoulder, and he will be given the name Peleyaotz El Gebar Aviad Sar Shalom, which in English would be wonder of a counselor, mighty God. Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. 
English versions of the Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament, will distort this passage in their translation. Don't go there and try to take anything from it. My R. Scroll Stone Edition Tanakh is really, really bad. It's bad because they can't stand what the Hebrew is actually saying. Because the Hebrew is actually saying that the one coming is going to be, aha, wonder of a counselor, mighty God, ooh, but then Prince of Peace. See, it's indicating here a father and a son. It's talking about two different individuals, if you will take that and go. This translation in in the complete Jewish Bible is exactly what the Hebrew says. And you're not going to find that in in a Jewish Bible that's created for their reading. This translation in the complete Jewish Bible is exactly what the Hebrew says. For instance, he will be given the name... Understand the concept of name in the society in which this was written. A name is not like it is in the West where we live now. You and I have a name that's just an identification to separate us from the rest of the pack. The name here indicates characteristics. The name here indicates characteristics. And this is the part that they distort in the Jewish Bible because they don't like what it's being said. They distort the characteristics that are being given of the one that's coming. This English translation in the Stern edition is accurate. You have to realize, we have to realize, that the son that is born to us is defined here as God. He is defined as God. And that's what the praise by these millions of angels is also done in Revelation 5, 13 and 14. Give me that again. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea. Yes, everything in them saying, To the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belong praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living beings said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The chapter ends with praise of the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb. So, in a way, they are merged. We can't differentiate between the two, yet they are separate but one. This concludes, if you will, with four living creatures, four living beings, giving a resounding amen. That's the four angels that are surrounding the throne and the 24 elders falling down in worship, paying homage as part of the worship of the one sitting on the throne and of the Lamb. So now I got to ask a question. Got to ask you a question. Why did we spend so much time on chapters 4 and 5? Most people read through this just very, very quickly. Well, chapters 4 and 5 have proclaimed in, I believe, vivid and clear and competent terms that there is really only one power that is controlling the world's destiny. I think that's what we can take out of all that that we've just worked our way through if we condense it. And that fate, the control of the world's destiny, is not an accident. Some people believe in fate, but fate is not an accident. Evil does not control or prevail. Here the world and the believers in it are in the hands of a loving Father and a Savior that died for us. All that we study from this point forward must be understood in that context. From here on, the world and the believers in it are all in the hands of a loving Father and a Savior that died for us, And all that we studied from this point on through Revelation 
has to be understood from that context. That's the only way that we'll be able to fully comprehend what is coming in the rest of the chapters of Revelation, only in the context of that thought. Fate is not an accident. God is in control. Because what's being revealed is not very pleasant. We have to keep that in mind because people don't want to say, well, God wouldn't do that. My God's a loving God. Have you ever heard that? Uh-huh. Well, this wraps up chapter 5, and so we'll get started on chapter 6. And I want to make a few comments before we actually get into the chapter to lay a little groundwork for you. First of all, remember, as we were going through chapters 2 and 3, we made some references to dispensational pre-tribulization. I want to, again, give us some idea of the view that these people have, these pre-tribbers. When we get into verse 2 of this chapter, we're going to see a rider on a white horse that goes forth to conquer when the first seal is broken. Dispensational pre-tribulationists have consistently and almost universally interpreted the emergence of this rider on a white horse to represent the false messiah, who is called the Antichrist by the church, who will first conquer by deception. There are some other things, though, that we need to be aware of that are represented in this theological view. Generally speaking, dispensationalists hold that the events of Revelation chapters 6 through 19 deal with the Great Tribulation period. Chapters 6 through 9 and 17 are concerned with the first half. Chapters 10 through 14 with events of the middle and chapters 15, 16, and 18 with the events of the second half. Now remember this tribulation period from Daniel. The people of Israel make a covenant with the false Messiah for seven years. That begins the tribulation period. They break the tribulation period down into three and a half year periods. The first part and the second part so that what is being spoken about here, a first half and a second half, with a transition in the middle. Looking at the events of the first half, a couple of things need to be noted. First of all, some events occur in chronological order, with one event following another. The seals being broken and the shofars, the trumpets, uh, judgments, really fall into this category. Dispensationalists think these events are sequential. As we go through them, we're going to make that judgment as you see this, how this actually breaks down. See if it appears logical or not. Other events will occur through the first half simultaneously with the sequential events. They think there are perhaps five such events occurring throughout the first half. Some of these events will actually begin before the tribulation starts, but continue on into and through the first half. Dispensationalists are saying some events begin for before the covenant is made between Israel and, and those that are around her, before the tribulation begins. Also, dispensationalists indicate that before that covenant is made, before the tribulation begins, the church is raptured taken out. That's a dispensationalist view. 
At this time, the believers are no longer on the earth. Also held is a governmental system of ten kings and ten kingdoms, and this will take place after the fall of the one world government, before the tribulation, and I'll throw you a little clue, that one world government is divided into ten kingdoms, so that kind of blows a hole in that little theology. I'm not going to go any further with this. I've just laid out things that, that are there that are going to pop up and, and be explained in, I believe, greater detail. What I wanted you to give you, though, what I wanted to give you was the idea, an idea, really, of the pre-trib dispensationalist thinking as we start through the breaking of these seals. The first four are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse those first four seals that are broken. There's been a movie about this, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. The expression lends itself to Hollywood, doesn't it? If you've seen the movie, don't let it be a driving influence in your going through the book of the Revelation. We have to remember that apocalypse comes from the Greek, and apocalypse is a word that means revelation. That's all that it means. That's all that it means. When we get to verse 2, this will be the first horseman of the apocalypse, the first horseman of the revelation that's going to appear. So let's begin then uh, to look at chapter 6 by looking at Revelation 6.1. Next I watched as the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings say in a thundering voice, Go! Here again the statement, next I watched, reminds us again that John is not dreaming, but he's an observer of what's being shown him. The verse begins with, I watched, and the Lamb himself broke the first seal. This is the act that actually sets the string of events into motion. This is the act that sets the revelation of what God is going to give us into motion. From this time on, there's a timetable that's going to be followed. This begins the first judgment. It's interesting that Yeshua, at the beginning of his first ministry on the earth, made a statement when he read in the synagogue in Nazareth. Let's go to Luke 4, 16-19. This is very early in his ministry. He's really just come up from being immersed before Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, and he's gone up to the Galilee, and he's worked his way up to Nazareth, which is his hometown. Now, he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. On Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual. He stood up to read, and he was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The spirit of Adonai is upon me, therefore he has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the imprisoned, and renewed sight for the blind, to release those who have been crushed, to proclaim a year of the favor of Adonai. And he stopped right there, which is right in the middle of a sentence. Mm-hmm. That in itself is an indicative of what was going on, because if you complete the sentence, it would say, and proclaim the day of vengeance of our Lord. Because he's quoting here from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Let's go there, please. 
The spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me because Adonai has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to let out in the light those bound in the dark, to proclaim the year of the favor of Adonai and the day of vengeance of our God. You should have quit reading in mid-sentence because, among other things, that was all of this prophecy that was going to be fulfilled in his first ministry. That was all that was going to be fulfilled in his first ministry was the day, the year of the favor of Adonai. That's where what's going to be fulfilled in his first ministry is completed. Now in Revelation 6.1, we've arrived at his second ministry. And his second ministry is where the completion of this prophecy takes place. Yeshua has proclaimed the year of favor of Adonai 2,000 years ago. But when his ministry begins again, he will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And people don't want to hear this. So, now this prophecy will be fully fulfilled with the breaking of this first seal. Before it was broken, it was only partially fulfilled. And Yeshua knew that he was not fulfilling it at that time, so he stopped in the middle of a sentence and he told them, Today, as you have heard it read, this passage of Tanakh was fulfilled. The first part was fulfilled in Yeshua's first coming, but the work of the Lamb was not only to bring men salvation from sin, bring them redemption from condemnation of sin, but Yeshua includes an element of judgment as in the day of the vengeance of our God. Now at the opening of the first seal, one of the four living creatures doesn't say which one. If it's the first one, it would be the one that has a face like a lion. This first one of the four living creatures comes into view and his voice is characterized as thundering. His voice is characterized as thundering. And I heard one of the four living beings say in a thundering voice, Notice in chapter 4, verse 6, these four living beings were not only around the throne, they were around the center of the throne. They are in a special relationship with our God Almighty. And now we see that they're the ones that are carrying out the orders that are given. Does the lamb shout? No. One of the four living beings shouted. And the four living beings are the ones giving the commands. Let's go to Job uh, chapter 40, there's a, an interesting statement made here. This phrase, thundering voice, is used here. So Job 46 through 9. Brad and I answered Job out of the storm. Stand up like a man and brace yourself. I will ask questions. You give the answers. Are you impunging my justice? Putting me in the wrong to prove yourself right? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Mm-hmm. If we go to Ezekiel chapter 1, we will find a storm and the four living beings around the throne of God are in that cloud, in that storm. And the one on the throne that's above them appears to be a person that is in a very glorified form. This is Ezekiel chapter 1. For those of you who'd like to do a little homework, read Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. It is also this cloud that covers Zion like a chuppah and a sukkah in Isaiah chapter 4. Same cloud. And it is out of this cloud that Yeshua will return to rule. 
See, all of these things come together as we paste them together in here. Do you have an arm like God's, it says here? Adonai's asking Job, do you have an arm like God's? See, that would be Messiah he was talking about. Can you thunder with a voice like his? The thundering voice of the living being relates that God has given him power. That one of those four angels around that throne has been given the power to give this message out. And his voice can thunder just like God's because that's the message he's delivering. In other words, he speaks for God and he says, go. The actual translation probably should be come. But complete Jewish Bible translates it, go either way. It sets the events into motion. It sets the events into motion. It's addressed to the first of the four horsemen that are to go forward. The four horsemen who will act as agents on the earth. Notice this. Each of these four horsemen will act as God's agents on the earth. They're each one going to represent something and do something different. And we'll break these down as we go through these. These are ones that are called out by God. Go. And they go. More than this call to go, this calls them into action. This calls them into action. What is really calling them into action, though, is the breaking of the seal by the Lamb. The breaking of the seal by the Lamb is what is really calling them into action. And then one of the four living beings says in a thunderous voice, Go, in the same kind of voice that God uses as we study the seven seals, which we will start to win with next time, we need to notice how these parallel the events of the Olivet Discourse. Remember, we studied the Olivet Discourse, and that Olivet Discourse is a statement of the end of times that was given by Yeshua at the request of his Talmudim just before he went to the execution stake. He and his Talmudim or disciples are on the Mount of Olives looking down on the beautiful temple. And Yeshua says to them, see all of this? It's going to be totally destroyed. Not one stone left standing, which creates a little question. And in my mind is, how can the Temple Mount be the Temple Mount if no stone is going to be left standing? But that's a whole new different thing. No stone left standing. From this statement then came Matthew 24.3, please. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the Talmudim, the disciples, came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of that you are coming and that the Olam Hazeh, the age, is ending? Wow. These are the questions that he answered in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. What's very interesting is how this Revelation chapter 6 comports with the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 6 and 7, 9 and 29, Mark 7 through 9 and 24 through 25, Luke 21, 9 through 12 and 25 through 26, and then we have Revelation 6, 2 through 17. First item mentioned in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew was wars, in Mark, wars, in Luke, wars, in Revelation 6, wars. Second item mentioned in Olivet Discourse in Matthew, international strife, in Mark, international strife, in Luke, the same, in Revelation 6, the same. 
Third item mentioned in Matthew, famine. In Mark, earthquakes. In Luke, earthquakes. But in Revelation 6, famine. Fourth item in Matthew, earthquakes. In Mark, famine. In Luke, famine. In reverse order of that third item just above. But they are all saying the same thing. Revelation 6 talks about pestilence and Hades. Revelation 5, Matthew, persecutions, Mark, persecutions, Luke, pestilence, Revelation 6, persecution. Sixth item, Matthew, eclipse of the sun, moon, and stars, Mark the same, Luke, persecutions, Revelation, earthquakes, eclipse of the sun, waning of the moon, falling of the stars, men calling rocks to fall on them. You can see how these things correspond as we work our way through those things that were mentioned by Yeshua to his Talmudim at the beginning of the week that he would spend in in Jerusalem, ending up on the execution stake and ultimately coming out of the, tem- out of the tomb as a risen man, predating and precluding and looking forward to what all of us can be doing. All right. You see how these things correspond? What Yeshua is telling his disciples is very close very close to what's being revealed to us in Revelation 6. That'll give you something to chew on until we can pick this up again, which will be next week, all other things being equal. And we'll get started breaking the seals next week uh, as we get into that. So I'll close with that for now.